Greetings this Friday morning to my church family at North Johnson City Baptist Church, as well as to all those listening on Sermon Audio. I pray that the events uh, that we have looked at this week have been a blessing to you. I have really enjoyed going through this journey with you as we've looked at the events of Holy Week through the Gospel of Mark, and today we come to Good Friday. This is a bittersweet day, sweet because it represents the plan of God that the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, would come and give his life as an atonement for his people. But my friends, I, I don't see how you can look at these events and not meet them with a sadness as we see our king despised and mocked and abused. I'm thankful that my Christ loved me enough to endure all of this. But as I read it, it is hard to read. As we begin this morning, we want to start uh, at the events that really begin the day. You know, the Jewish calendar is a little different from ours, and so the day started at what we would consider the end of the day, in a way, at, at uh, sunset. And so as we think about these events, we see things like the betrayal of Christ is happening really on Friday. And we dealt a lot with the betrayal yesterday, so I don't plan on looking at it today. But Christ is arrested, and the the flock scatters, and he is taken to the chief priest. And I want you to listen as we read, as he's taken to the courtyard of the high priest, the events that happen in Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. My friends, there is so much wrong with this activity. But again, you see this designation, if you will, of those who represent the power, the chief priests who represent the power in the temple, if you will. You have the high priest here who represents power within the religious system of Israel. You have the scribes who were those who were seen as the experts of the law. They are here. And you have even the elders or members of the Sanhedrin here, these community respected leaders 
of Israel all have gathered here and all are gathered for one purpose, and that is to get, thr- get rid of this threat that is represented in Jesus Christ. Now notice uh, this doesn't really go according to plan. They've clearly planned this out, but it isn't going according to plan. The witnesses show up, but uh, they cannot tell the same story. They cannot get their details correct. Now, this matters because the law says what? That on the testimony of two, it must be established. You can't have one say one thing and another say something different. And on two different non-confirming testimonies, hang a ruling. And so uh, the chief priest is realizing that this is not going uh, according to plan, the uh, high priest, excuse me. And so he just decides to cut through all of the events that have been planned here. And he just asked the question directly. Why won't you answer this, these men who are testifying against you? Yet I will ask you a question myself. Are you the Christ? Ultimately, this is the question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus gives an answer that is rich with Old Testament theology and typology, doesn't he? This idea of uh, the Son of Man. And they know the reference that he's making here. And, of course, you can see that this is considered blasphemous. The high priest rents his clothes, tears his clothes, and says, why do we even need the witnesses? There's a brilliant plan. When the witnesses don't work out for you, change the strategy and get rid of the witnesses, right? And so what do they do? They decide that he is worthy of death. They've charged him with blasphemy for saying that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. They charge him with blasphemy and and pass the judgment that he is worthy of death. Now, if you'll notice, it says that they've condemned him as being deserving of death. They couldn't condemn him in order that his death might be carried out because they don't have that authority. The Romans often left local uh, governance in control. You see that in this story. They left the Sanhedrin in charge, if you will, of religious affairs in Israel. But the Romans did not give them the right of the sword. If they wanted to pass a verdict, they could do so. It's really a recommendation in that sense because it gets taken to the magistrate of Rome. And he can basically confirm their sentence and and say that they've adjudicated properly and the person is worthy of death. But really, in the end, it's the Roman decision that matters, not the Sanhedrin's decision. But isn't it interesting that they have called him a false prophet, if you will. They're saying he's not really a prophet. He is not the Messiah. He is not the Son of God. But they are going to seek his execution on the basis that he calls himself the Messiah and the Son of God. But what mockery we see as they cover his head and beat him and ask him to prophesy who is the one striking him. My friends, what shameful behavior to treat the Messiah, the King of Israel, this way. We come into chapter 15, and we see that there's a problem because they've convicted him on blasphemy. That's what they needed to do, the Sanhedrin, if they wanted to have a a charge that they could justify seeking death for. The problem is they can't carry it out, and they know that Pilate or any of the, the Roman authorities won't care at all about a Jewish charge of blasphemy. They're not going to carry out an execution based on a charge of blasphemy that doesn't really bother the Roman leaders. And so they recognize they have to do something different. And even though the council has decided that he has been uh, pronounced worthy of dying based on blasphemy, now they re-steer the charges. Can you imagine uh, 
example after example of a kangaroo court here, lying witnesses that cannot confirm each other's stories, the claim that it's blasphemy to simply call oneself the Messiah. They don't offer, they offer no proof that he's not the Messiah. And then when they realize, well, the charge we've placed against him will carry no weight with the Roman magistrates. It says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation. It's, it's actually a discussion with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Most scholars say what that consultation was, we've got to kind of rework the charges. We need charges that will carry weight with Rome. Well, what charges did they come to that they thought would carry weight with Rome? Well, we're going to see as we read this. It says, Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? That tells you all you need to know. The charge that's been brought is, This man calls himself king. And there's only one king, isn't there? Therefore, if he calls himself king, he's saying that he should rule in place of Caesar. This is a charge of high treason. So my friends, Pilate asked him directly, Are you the king of the Jews? Do you call yourself this? And Jesus answered and said unto him, It is as you say. It's interesting, he acknowledges it, but he doesn't say it directly. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? Pilate was no fan of the Jewish leaders. He knew uh, how political they were. I think he senses, and he'll tell us that he does, that something is up here. And so he's asking, "Why, why won't you answer these charges? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now, if we were to go to all the Gospels and put together the events that are happening here, there is a fuller story. But I'm really going to stick to this of trying to stay as close to just Mark's Gospel as we can. Now, Pilate just cannot imagine that Jesus will not answer these charges, feeling as if they're they're weak charges. That says this in verse 6. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. He sensed the leaders were against Jesus, so maybe the people would seek to free Jesus. There was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Brothers and sisters, when an evil man like Pilate is shocked by the response, that should say something. Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! Crucify him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Dear brothers and sisters, I pray as you're listening to this, you hear the inevitability of what's happening here. 
This is the plan and will of God that this might happen. Christ, perfect, sinless, holy, and righteous, standing before this wicked earthly ruler in Pilate. And so many people read this passage and, and almost make Pilate out to be a good guy. Read history. Pilate was horrible. But the, the chief priests who've come and acted as prosecutors are so utterly evil that they even make Pilate look halfway decent. But all of these people are coming together to crucify the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus stands, not even defending himself. It seems that Pilate sees this uh, tradition that has um, begun through the years to release a prisoner at the Passover that was of the people's choice. Again, probably the idea here is these Romans who have usurped our power are uh, arresting people wrongly and putting them in jail. And so to kind of quell some of that, they would make a big display of releasing one prisoner at Passover. Surely the crowds will want Jesus. Surely they'll want him. They wanted Barabbas. I think, again, as you think about what we've discussed this week, you would have to argue this is a further confirmation that Mark is giving us that the people's real desire was not for the Messiah who Christ is, but the Messiah that they desired him to be. They really wanted a Barabbas. They wanted an insurrectionist. They wanted someone who would fight against Rome, kill against Rome if need be. They didn't want one who would come and be led silently to the slaughter. They didn't want a Savior who would free them from the chains of sin and death. They wanted someone who would liberate them from Rome and bring back the glories of the, the past age of Israel. Isn't it interesting as we think about this trial that he's now been charged with blasphemy by the Jewish leaders and mocked as the Messiah and a prophet, and they abused him as a, mocking him as a prophet. But now the Romans will abuse him, mock him, and beat him as king. If we were to continue to read, it seems that Pilate and had him scourged. And, and by the way, just reading about that is awful. They would have these whips that had uh, shards of metal, shards of bone in them, in the, in the leather straps. And so when you'd be beaten with them, it wasn't just the straps themselves lashing your skin, but those fragments would dig into your skin and draw chunks out. It, would, it was a violent, violent whipping so much so that a number of the prisoners who had been condemned to die by crucifixion never made it to the cross. They would die from the scourging alone. Jesus is rendered so weakened physically by it that that is the reason that he is given someone else to carry his cross. These soldiers, it says in verse 16, led him away into the hall, the praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, something like 600 men. And they clothed him with purple, the color of royalty. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and they pushed it onto his head. As a Christian, I don't know what's harder to hear. The physical pain of pushing that crown of thorns into my master's head or the mocking that it's done with. He didn't deserve either. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They spoke truthfully, though they didn't know it. He is the king of the Jews. They spat on him. They spat on his head. And they struck him with a reed. 
And then they mocked him further by bowing the knee and worshiping him. My friends, as we read about this, I want you to think for a moment. The Jewish leaders convict him and mock him for being a prophet, which he was and is. And the Roman leaders convict him and mock him for being the king that he actually is. And that brings us to the crucifixion. They compelled Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. These must have been well-known people uh, to the Roman Christian community as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Again, that detail there to tell us that Christ was physically unable at that point to bear his cross. In his humanity, he had been so severely beaten. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, that is translated the place of the skull. There's been much debate about why it got that name. Many think it must have been an outcropping outside the city that uh, the face of it looked like a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, and he did not take it. There's some discussion if this was a sedative or a, a way of relieving pain or if it was, again, mockery. Regardless, our king did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. As we think for a moment about what Christ is about to endure, as he is on the cross, we want to recognize that uh, this idea of crucifixion or this act of crucifixion was devised by the Persians, but the Romans, if you will, mastered it. Uh, They were known for several methods of crucifixion, and it was a a horrible, a horrible punishment, a a horrible way to to die. Andreas Kirstenberger, in his book, The Final Days of Jesus, says this, Most first-century readers would have had some idea of the physical torture and public shame that crucifixion involved. Victims either died from physical trauma, a loss of blood, or shock or succumbed to suffocation when they no longer had the strength to lift themselves up to breathe. That's why they often broke the legs of those on the cross, because they couldn't then lift themselves up to to catch their breath, and they would suffocate quickly. My friends, think about this. I read a paper by a medical doctor once who had uh, investigated crucifixion, and he goes into incredible depth explaining the physical punishment and pain of this method. It is horrific what our Christ endured for us, a shameful death and an agonizing death. That's why when the scriptures say that he became obedient to death, yes, even the death of the cross, that is supposed to mean something to us. It certainly did to those in the Roman world who knew about crucifixion, who knew the horrors of it as they would go down roads lined with crosses, lined with criminals who were sitting there sometimes for days dying. And there are reports of things uh, so horrific that I, I wouldn't even want to speak about them today. And while he's up there enduring this, he's enduring the mockery of everyone Everyone around him is mocking him. It says that it it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Again, 
They spoke truly, though they didn't know it. They mocked him, and yet it was true. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right side and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah fifty-three twelve. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who will destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. My friends, I hope as you're listening to this, you recognize everyone was mocking him in this. Everyone was mocking him. Those that walked by, the chief priests, the other prisoners uh, who were being crucified, all mocking him. Even the Jewish leaders mocking him by pretending that if he would save himself, they would believe. How many miracles had he worked, and yet they didn't believe. Again, quoting Kirstenberger in his book, The Final Days of Jesus, he said, The false offer of the Jewish leaders to believe if Jesus supernaturally came down from the cross likely elicited laughter, but Jesus' enemies would not get the last laugh. There is deep irony in the fact that if God had come down from the cross, he would have saved himself, but not others. If Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the second person of the blessed Trinity, had come down off that cross, he would have saved himself, but the mission of God would have failed. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth, until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sambachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, referencing Psalm 22, often called the Psalm of the Cross. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. The wording there, uh, Eloi, sounded to them similar to a call for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus, our Jesus, cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. My friends, no one takes Christ's life, but he laid it down. There are so many events to cover here on this important day the most important day in human history prior to Easter, prior to the coming day of resurrection. It's interesting, as we continue to read from Mark, he tells us that there are other women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. 
and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. What a courageous man and act that was. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. My friends, that is the end of the text for this Friday. I pray that we can understand for a moment the horrors the horrors of what Christ endured, that he endured them for us. Rembrandt, when he painted the crucifixion, he painted himself as one who was placing Christ upon the cross because he knew the truth of that, that he, it is his sin that placed Christ on that cross. I wonder as I think about the events of this week, particularly what we looked at yesterday and the Garden of Gethsemane, as Christ was praying that that cup of God's wrath might pass from him, if at all possible. It isn't just the wrath in the sense of this punishment, this divinely ordered punishment that falls upon Christ that I think Christ was thinking about and was clearly stressed about, as he should be, to think about enduring the wrath of God. But I think it's this moment where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not just the quotation of a psalm, brothers and sisters. That is in some mysterious way the, the true result of the sins of Christ's people being imputed to Christ, the wrath of God abiding on him. And all of this, not for sin that was his, he was sinless, he was the spotless Lamb of God. For the sin of others, he bore all of this. And he cried out, as Mark tells us, with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. And he was placed in a tomb, and a stone rolled before it. And if you were those women... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, if you were those women who were there watching that stone rolled in place, or if you had been Joseph of Arimathea who laid the body in the tomb, or if you were one of Christ's disciples that heard the testimony, his body has been placed in a tomb and has been sealed shut, where would your heart be? Where would your hope be? Where would your trust be? Where would your confidence be? Well, I don't think we have to wonder, do we? The disciples are scattered, scared, confused, heartbroken. My friends, we're in a very blessed position because we know where this story is going. We close 
this devotion this week with our final look at the Gospel of Mark until that day when everything will change. When those women will go to the tomb to anoint Christ's body and will find a glorious revelation of truth. And I'm going to ask you if you're listening to this and if you'll join us on Sunday morning or whenever you can listen to the recording of our Easter message and service, remember the feeling tonight, the end of the day on Friday, as Christ has been buried and the stone rolled over the entrance to the tomb. Remember the heavy hearts. And I don't think it should be hard as you read of the treatment that our Savior endured, the wrath he endured, the mockery that he endured. My friends, what an exciting time it's going to be Sunday morning when we learn that death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him. He arose. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this journey. Father, help us to remember that though we say all the time that we are uh, saved freely, saved by grace, grace is an unmerited gift. It costs us nothing. That is true, but it costs Christ something. All we have to do is read this passage. Paul tells us, remember, you were bought at a price. Help us to remember that we were bought at a price. Help us to remember, I pray, that that price was tremendous. Help us to appreciate what Christ did for us. And Father, as we spend today and tomorrow, help us to remember the grief that those who followed Christ had as they were confused as what was going on. And help that to lead us, Father, to celebrate all the more with excitement and joy this Easter Sunday morning that Christ might be lifted high, exalted and glorified amongst his people. We pray this for his everlasting glory. Amen.